few announcements real quick um, for all of you tonight. You may have heard, um, we mentioned it last week, but we're having the Thanksgiving community service um, for some of the churches here in Bryson City. We've been invited to host it tonight, and so uh, at 5 o'clock, um, we're going to gather here. We're going to have a, a message from one of the other pastors in town. Our band is going to sing a few songs for worship, and then afterwards, we're going to head downstairs for a potluck dinner, and so inviting all of you to be a part of it. It's going to be a neat time. It's a, a great opportunity for us to be able to be the host for other uh, faith communities to join us in worship and kind of gather together um, as we unite under this uh, this message of Christ. And so inviting you to be a part of it. We do have a couple more needs for the potluck. If you want to make a, a stew, a soup, or a chili, um, we have a couple more spots for that. Um, if you want to let me know after service or to bring some bread, I think is one of those things. Um, and so if you could help out, let us know, myself or Debbie, um, before you leave today so we can get you in the list and make sure we have all that covered. Um, tomorrow night is our guys' night out. Every Monday we have something going on, and uh, next uh, Monday is the uh, third Monday of the month. And so guys' night out, we're meeting at Bryson City Outdoors. I'm going to hang out there, have some uh, conversation, and be a part of that. So if you're looking for a way to engage in community, um, if you're a guy, um, those are the, that's a night for you. So uh, ladies' night was last week, guys' night this week, BCO at 7 o'clock. In a few weeks, December 16th is our progressive Christmas dinner. That's a, another way to engage and get to know people and be a part of community. Uh, we have um, different locations throughout town where we have different uh, courses of the meal. And so you're invited to, to be a part of that. You get kind of broke up into... 8 to 15 people in a group. You meet at a house for appetizers, and then all of a sudden you get, you get a, a place to go to a new house, and we end up all together for dessert. And so it's, it's a great time. Had a lot of people last year want more this year. There's at-your-table cards where you can sign up, um, and in the back there's a, a big station there lit up in the back is a way for you to sign up for that. So be a part of that. And last is, uh, those of you who know Hawthorne Heights, that's our teen shelter here in uh, um, uh, Swain County. We, we are... Uh, hugely connected with that, big part of that. We uh, love those teenagers and being a part of their life. And every once in a while, we get to celebrate them and celebrate their life when it's their birthday. And so we have a birthday coming up for one of the, stu- one of the students there. Um, we are trying to fulfill his wish or his need list as well as give him a nice birthday party and a meal. Looking for some help there to either come to the party to help us celebrate. If you want to throw some money in for the gifts or for the meal, those are ways that you can be a part of that. Just, again, let us know after the service if you can do that. How many of you are traveling for Thanksgiving? Head it out. Going somewhere to see family. How many of you love to travel? Get in the road. All right. What's the, what's the longest, the furthest place you've ever been to? What, what's the, what's the like, longest journey you've been on in the car to go somewhere? What's the longest place? I want you, for a minute, think of that, and then you're going to go ahead and say hello to the neighbor next to you. And I want you to share your longest car journey you've ever been on. Go. Who wants to see the triptych? What? Dad, we're playing. Okay, shut off Dad. the video games. Come on, Russ. Shut it off. I know you'll enjoy this. I've worked out the whole trip on the computer so we get the maximum amount of fun time at Wally World without missing any of the good stuff along the way. Go. There's us, and there's Wally World. Now let's just take a look at uh, day one, shall we? Honey, come on in. We're going to do day one. Okay, now there's the uh, family truckster as we leave Chicago. Rusty, please do not eat the truckster. 
Russ, do you mind? I'm trying to uh, work this out here on the old computer. Please, Russ. Oh, great, Audrey. Thank you, Audrey. That's just great. God damn, you're calm. All right, that's enough, Russ. Okay, now I think we're moving toward the ground. Thank you. Good shot, Audrey. Dad, I forgot. Why aren't we flying? Why aren't we flying? Because getting there is half the fun. You know that. Getting there is half the fun. You guys, I told you last week and before that I have a deep connection with Clark Griswold. That was my mentor as a kid. I wanted to be like him. But we are on a journey as a faith community. And getting there is half the fun. Do you believe me? Do you guys remember your first Bible? Anybody remember getting their first Bible? No one, a few of you, a few of you remember getting your first Bible. Do you remember who gave it to you? Do you remember how old you were when you got it? What year you were given? Do you remember what it looked like? I remember my first Bible. It was blue. It was genuine imitation leather. Um, My name printed in silver letters across the front of it. Gold was too expensive, but I got silver. It was KJV, just like the Apostle Paul's Bible. And my mom and dad gave it to me, right? They gave it to me with love in September 21st, 1985. You know how I know? Because I still have it right here. This was my first Bible I was ever given from mom and dad with love, September 21st, 1985. was my first Bible. It's very unworn. Uh, no, don't read into that. That's, wait, hold on. All right, so... How many of you had a Bible with your name printed on it? I got a story. My mind has a different last name because when I was a kid, I had a different last name. And it's a new name, and we can get into that another time. But, but if you didn't get a Bible with your name on it, don't, don't worry. Don't worry. It's probably for better that you didn't get one. But if I had to guess, if I had to assume, most of us were probably introduced to the Bible as a child. Or we were introduced to the Bible um, by another adult who was introduced to the Bible as a child. And most of us know stories from the Bible, but we don't know the story of the Bible. Like how we got it, what exactly it is, how do we read it, um, what's it for, what's the the purpose of it. And understanding how the Bible got here and what the Bible is, is almost as important as knowing what is in it. And as kids, that might not be as important, but as adults, that's very important. If you don't know the story of the Bible... It's easy to begin to discount the stories that are in the Bible, to misinterpret them, to misread them, to misuse them, to stop even believing what they say. So the Bible goes, so my faith goes, right? Andy Stanley would call this the 66-card house of cards. If you take one away, 66 books of the Bible, take one away, it all falls down. Rob Bell calls it a a brick wall, that the foundation of our faith is a brick wall. And if you remove one brick or begin to chisel away at a brick, the wall comes crashing down. You and I were told when we were given the Bible that this is God's word, that it's all true. All the answers to life questions are in it. Don't ever question it. And of course, we, we believe what the adults in our church told us. And we developed an understanding of the Bible based on what we were told about it, not because we read it ourselves. And so regardless of your faith story or your church history, whether or not you ever owned a Bible, whether you have read any of it or not, you and I, we've, we've formed opinions of the Bible. We formed beliefs and, and perspectives and attitudes towards the Bible. 
before we ever read it. And for many of us, we've carried that childhood perspective of the Bible into our adulthood. And for some of us, the Bible says it, that settles it, right? And others, it's no longer that simple. Because at some point, someone has pointed out to you what the Bible actually says about things and and parts that they didn't tell you in church or in Sunday school, the parts that they may have skipped over. And you've had a difficult time reconciling what you believed about the Bible and, and what your life experience has been. Answers are no longer adding up. And so I want to suggest this morning, because we've made the Bible into something that it never was meant to be, that perhaps the Bible is not the foundation of our faith. That maybe it was never supposed to be. That the Bible is not the end of the debate. It's not the end of the conversation, but the beginning of a conversation for us. And that brings us into our chapter this week from our book, We Make the Road by Walking, that Terry introduced, The Great Conversation. The year was 800 B.C. The Israelites and Judeans had already survived so much. In 1722, the northern kingdom of Israel had fallen to the Assyrians. By 587 B.C., Judah was conquered by the Babylonians, and Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed. The Israelites didn't know how they should interpret their plight. Some fear that God had fallen and failed them and, and, or had abandoned them. Others blamed themselves for displeasing God in some way. Those who had felt abandoned expressed their devastation in heart-rendering poetry. Those who felt they had displeased God tried to identify their transgressions and assign blame and call people to repent. And this was the period of time when the oral tradition known as the Old Testament was written either for the first time or re-edited and compiled And as the people changed and evolved, their understanding of God changed and evolved. For example, when they were nomadic wanderers in the desert, they envisioned God as a pillar of cloud and fire, cooling them by day and warming them by night. When they were involved in conquest, God was the Lord of hosts, the commander of the armies. When they were being pursued by the enemy, God was pictured as a hiding place in the rocks. And when they became a unified kingdom, God was their ultimate king. And when they returned to their land and felt more secure, more gentle images of God took center stage, like God as their shepherd, for example. When they suffered defeat, they saw God as their avenger. When they suffered injustice, God was the judge who would convict their oppressors and restore justice. When they felt abandoned and alone in a foreign land, They imagined God as a loving mother who would never forget her nursing child. And not only then do we see the understanding of God evolve under evolving circumstances, we also see their understanding of human affairs mature. For example, to immature minds, there are two kinds of leaders. It says that those who have been set in place by God and those who haven't, the former deserves absolute obedience since to disobey them would be to disobey God. But in the Bible, we see this simplistic thinking challenged. Moses, for example, was a God-anointed leader, and people were indeed urged to obey him, and they were punished when they didn't. Yet, when Moses made mistakes of his own, he got no special treatment. And the same was with Saul, and the same even with David. 
as their understanding of human affairs matured, their moral reasoning matured as well. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve wanted to grasp the fruit of knowing good and evil as if it were a simple thing. But in their biblical story and as it unfolded, first it became clear that the line between good and evil didn't run between groups of us or them because there were good guys on both sides. And then it became clear that the line between good and evil didn't simply run between good and bad individuals, as many still believe today. Instead, the Bible presents a moral, morally complex and dynamic world that we see the lines between good and evil run and moves within each one of us. So from Genesis to Job, the Bible was full of conversations like these with different viewpoints making their case, point and counterpoint, statement and counterstatement. And sadly, through history, people have often quoted one side or the other to prove that their view was, was um, all biblical. This is why it's important for us to remain humble as we as a community read the Bible together. That we don't seek ammunition for the side of an argument that we already stand on. But we seek the wisdom that comes when we listen humbly to all the different voices arising in the biblical story. Because wisdom emerges from the conversation among these voices. These voices that have been narrowed down into five broad categories with our author. He says, first there's the priest. They emphasize keeping the law and maintaining order. Offering sacrifices and faithfully maintaining tradition and taboos. Then there were the prophets. They were open uh, and often in tension with the priest. They emphasized social justice and care for the poor and the condition of the heart. And then the poets, they expressed full range of human emotion and opinion. The good, the bad, the ugly. And the sages who would, in proverb, an essay, in, in creative fiction, they would record their theories and their observations, their questions and their doubts. And finally, it was the storytellers that would link them all together, each with varying agendas, who try to tell the stories of the people who look back to Abraham as their father, Moses as their liberator, and David as their greatest king, and God as their creator and faithful companion. To be alive is to seek wisdom in this great conversation, McLaren says in this chapter, as we walk this road in conversation together. And like we said last week, we are inviting each one of us to be a part of this ongoing conversation as a bona fide member of an interpretive community. That was in chapter 12. And so briefly, I want you to listen to another voice that is speaking into our community. Uh, the staff and small groups have read her, some of her books. Um, she has been a, a voice in, in my um, walkthrough, in my journey, as well as some of you. And so I want you to listen to her as she talks about what the Bible is for her. Watch this video. I do believe the Bible. I believe the Bible is true. That doesn't mean I believe that every 
story in scripture is historical or scientific or that we can only learn truths from science and history. I think stories can speak really powerful truths into our lives. So with the Bible, I think a lot of people approach the Bible as a conversation ender. You know, you see the bumper stickers, the Bible said it, I believe it, that settles it. And I think that the Bible with all of its tensions and conflicts and competing voices and perspectives invites us into conversation with one another. I believe the Bible's meant to be a conversation starter, not a conversation ender. Um, And I think the Jewish community has done a much better job of preserving this notion of scripture as a conversation starter. Uh, I have an Orthodox Jewish friend named Ahava, and I heard from Ahava not long ago. She was telling me about how her husband's a rabbi, so they had a bunch of other rabbis over to their home um, to talk, and she said, oh, they were debating the Torah. Uh, The conversation went on and on. Nobody could seem to agree on the meaning. We started to run out of food, and oh, Rachel, she said, it was wonderful, (laughs) because she knew that that text was what drew them into community together. It gave them something to talk about. And I think the Bible, being people of faith, isn't just about being right about things. Being people of faith is about being part of a community. And the Bible invites us into community precisely because it's difficult to understand. Precisely because it doesn't have a single apparent clear meaning. Uh, The Bible invites conversation. It invites disagreement. And instead of freaking out about that, I think we should welcome it. Uh, I had a big kind of conversation debate on the blog the other day because I was struggling with the story of Abraham and Isaac. I said, I sure wouldn't drive a knife through my child's chest, even if I was convinced God was telling me to. And this, and next thing I knew, Atheists were weighing in, Jews were weighing in, Muslims, Christians, conservatives, liberals. Everybody had this sort of different take on Abraham and Isaac and how that story ought to inform us today. And I learned so much in that conversation about God, about my neighbors. Uh, I thought it was really beautiful. Now, some people were very upset that I didn't come out of that with a real clear... Who's right? What's the answer? Who wins? Who wins? on whether or not Abraham did the right thing. I don't know. I think the truth is hidden somewhere in the conversation, really. Um, And I think, you know, this notion that the Bible has is clear. If the Bible were clear, why would we have as many denominations that we have? Why would you and I be having this conversation right now? and, And why would we have the mistakes that we have in history? We had folks from the South, in the build-up to the Civil War, very convinced that the Bible was clear. Slaves, obey your masters. How can you contradict the Bible like that by supporting abolition? So if the Bible were clear, we wouldn't have the history that we have. We wouldn't have the conversations that we have now. Um, So I think rather than trying to force everyone to agree, forcing everybody to be on the same page, we welcome the conversation and we hold our interpretations with an open hand. Uh, whatever you think about inerrancy, all I know is that my interpretation sure isn't inerrant. I am not inerrant. And that's a good thing to keep in mind, to hold our interpretations of Scripture with an open hand so that should we be wrong, we have the humility to admit that. Um, And that's something that I think 
we struggle with a little bit. It goes back a to... common enemy to, to unite. Yeah. Are you saying get rid of enemies? <laughs> how, how do we get anything done? Well, the people who disagree with me on how we interpret certain biblical passages, whether that's Genesis 1 or even the Sermon on the Mount, have been, as crazy as they make me sometimes, have been like iron sharpening iron in my life. They've made me a better Christian because they see the Bible differently than I do. They interpret it differently than I do. And that forces me to confront some of my own prejudices, some of my own biases, and to be aware of that. I, I think the most dangerous thing is when people think that they're able to read the Bible objectively. This is an impossible thing to do. I cannot stop being an American when I read the Bible and all of the assumptions I have as an American. I can't stop being a woman when I read the Bible. I can't stop being 33 years old. I can't stop being me when I read the Bible and somehow have this completely objective view of it. Um, so it's that doesn't mean I can't understand it. That doesn't mean I can't glean meaning. That doesn't mean that it's not sufficient to transform my life. But it does mean I have to read it with humility. I don't have the option of putting myself aside and simply taking the Bible and reading it objectively. It's impossible to do that. And knowing that, I think, makes me a better reader of Scripture because I know, well, I might have this wrong. Who, who might read this differently than I would? How would a widow interpret this? How would a, a widow in India living in the slums interpret this? Uh, that's important. That's uh, bad news. Yeah. Well, if the gospel isn't good news for the poor, it's not good news. Like if, if the gospel isn't good news to the least of these, if it's not good news to the marginalized, if it's not good news to the outliers, the people who don't fit, it's not good news. If it doesn't work for them, then I've misunderstood it. Jesus said, I came to bring the gospel, the good news to the poor, to the hungry, to the left out, to the, the people in bondage, to the people, the prisoners. So if the gospel doesn't make sense to them, I'm reading it wrong. If it doesn't make sense to the outliers, to the marginalized, then it, it's not the gospel. Um, which is why I think it's so important that we surround ourselves by people unlike us and get their take on the Sermon on the Mount, on the Bible, on the gospel. Uh, because that's, that's when we really learn its truth. Not when we convince ourselves that we've got it all figured out and it's our job to give everyone else in the world our wisdom. How should people read the Bible? I mean, advice? I well, I think reading it as a conversation starter and reading it as um, a transformative work, something that, that changes how we behave and live, not just how we think. Um, you know, to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It's, 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 the Bible should call us to re constant repentance, to constant death and resurrection, to constant conformity to the person of Jesus Christ. And I think it's important to place Christ at the center of our reading. Um, you know, we don't worship the Bible. We don't follow the Bible. Uh, the Bible is not... We have to be careful of saying that the Bible is God's word. i got to be careful how I say this. <laughs> right. Jesus Christ is the word made flesh. Uh, when we want to know what God is like, we look to the person of Jesus Christ. That is God in sandals. That's God walking around among us. That's God weeping, responding, feeding, loving, celebrating, partying. Uh, we look to the person of Christ for that, uh, not to proof texts. Um, so I guess my point is 
reading the rest of scripture through the lens of Jesus Christ uh, changes what it looks like. So that, that video may and will be uh, very challenging for some of us to, to hear um, or a bit confusing. It is on, it's on the website. It's available there. If you go underneath our small group tabs, it's there for you to, to listen to again if you miss something or want to hear something like that. As well as all of our messages are there um, to, to hear what we've said in the past and things like that. But what, I want to be clear when I say, the, when I talk about the Bible being the foundational piece um, and it not being that. But Jesus Christ actually being the foundation of our faith, that the life, death, resurrection of Christ is why we're here. Not because someone wrote it down, but because it actually happened. Our faith isn't determined whether or not the Bible there is, it exists. It's the fact that Jesus Christ did, that he did come to earth, that he did uh, die for us and uh, rise from the dead. That being the focus and the center point of our faith. Because Something happened, not because it was written. So my question then to you, well, how has the conversation been? Like, uh, has it been a starter? Does conversations from faith and and stories of the Bible, has it become a starter to conversations or or an ender? Like, are you even having conversations at all? Are they, do we listen? Are they, are they times where you sit down and you talk or just, are just, or just share your side of things. I want to be honest and vulnerable with you just for a moment and kind of transition this message into this. And uh, I want you to hear my heart as I share just a little bit. Someone uh, said to me this week um, that they felt that conservatives are no longer welcome here at the Grove. To be fair, this particular person hasn't attended the Grove in years And I could probably count on both hands how many times they've attended in the last 12 years. But that's not the point. Perception is reality for some. And if that's how I've made you feel, I want to apologize. I would never want anyone to not feel welcome here. That's the opposite of what we're trying to do. And I understand at the same time that some of the things I say or I've said might offend some people and make people uncomfortable. You might not like that. But here's the deal. My job as this leader of this faith community is to move us forward. And to do that requires me to push back on some of the stuff that you and I may have grown up thinking or believing about God, about the Bible, about church, and about how we do life together, which is another way to say politics. And when change is needed, we must change. Change is uncomfortable. Moving to new places is uncomfortable. Conservative pastor and theologian Tim Keller said this in a recent article. When he was asked, what should the role of Christians in politics even be? He says, Christians cannot pretend they can transcend politics and simply preach the gospel. Those who avoid all political discussions and engagement are essentially casting a vote for the status quo. American churches in the early 19th century that did not speak out against slavery because that was what we would call now getting political 
We're actually supporting slavery by doing so. To not be political, he says, is to be political. The Bible shows believers as holding important posts in pagan governments. If you think of Joseph and Daniel in the Old Testament. He says Christians should be involved politically as a way of loving our neighbors, whether they believe as we do or not. To work for better public schools or for justice systems not weighted against the poor or to end racial segregation requires political engagement. Christians have done these things in the past and should continue to do so. So I've had, I've had conservative people say that I've, I've gone too far. I've had liberals say to me that I haven't gone far enough. I've had both Republicans and Democrats upset about something I said or, or didn't say. I'm an equal opportunity offender. I've even had people mad at me for something that was said by somebody else, right? Like someone this week upset that I was too political, but not political enough for their standards. If I haven't been, or if you haven't been offended or challenged or mad about something I've said, just wait. Give me time, right? But here's the truth. If nothing I ever say bothers you, if nothing I say challenges your beliefs or your thinkings, then I would be worried about you, right? Like, if, if I was told if, I've ever, if I ever want like, everyone to like me, don't be a pastor. Sell ice cream, right? But I've said this since I've started. Our faith is dynamic, not static. Like, we're all moving. We're all progressing. We're all evolving. We're moving forward. And that's the only direction we can go. Our faith is a journey. It's not a destination. And I want us all to get there together. But I know not everyone wants to get there or, or even get in the car to make the journey. In the clip we saw, why can't we just fly there, Dad? Come on, Russ. Because getting there is half the fun, right? When our family gets ready to take a road trip to see other family or to get away for a few days, the thing I look forward to the least is, is packing, right? Uh, it's rather annoying for me. Uh, my oldest plays travel ball. And so when we're in travel season, there's a lot of overnights that we go to for these tournaments. And so now I just live out of my toiletry bag. It just hangs in my bathroom and I never take it down and then just we're ready to pack because I don't want to forget something or leave something every time I go away because I hate the packing part of traveling. My seven-year-old, Rio, she hates the car ride, right? She, the car ride uh, are tougher with kids. I, I get it. But I never hated driving in the car. You see, my dad, he never took us anywhere, right? I, I went on one family vacation when I was a kid. I was 16 years old, and my dad took me, me and my mom to Florida. You see, my parents went to divorce court on Thursday. And so my dad said, hey, I'll make this up. I'll take you and your son to Florida for a couple days, right, to convince her to so not sign the papers. It worked. So I didn't have much experience with long car rides. That was the only one I took as a kid. Maybe that's why I like the car rides now. I never experienced them as a kid, right? I didn't hate them then. I wanted to go to places. I, I envied some of my friends that, that went on vacations. And so as a kid, I dreamt of lo loading all the family up in the, in the family truckster, right? And headed across the country to Wally World. I, I wanted that. And this God thing, it, it, he's, he's a part of our journey. God is in the questions. God is in the struggle. God is in the debates. God is in the conversation. But the reality for the community, for us, is if that we can't play well together, 
on the playground, well, there's that feeling of being unwelcome. And you've heard me say this story before, but I liken it to the, the neighborhood I grew up in as a kid. I lived in the suburbs and I literally could look out my door and see 40 more houses with kids that were either two years older or two years younger than me, all in, in just, just, a, just a stone throw away. I had a big neighborhood as a kid. We, we were always together hanging out. We loved to play basketball. And there was this kid who always showed up with the ball, right? And we've talked about this. And he made the rules on how we could play. And if we didn't obey his rules, well, then he would take the ball and go home. And his mom called my mom and I'd get home. And my mom would say, Timmy's mom called and said, you kicked him out of the club again. And, I'm, and he told his mom that you wouldn't let him play. And, I, and I'd say, no, mom, Timmy didn't like that we disagreed with him. Timmy thinks there's only one way to play together. And so Timmy quit and he took his ball, went home. And so what ended up happening to our group of friends in that neighborhood? Well, eventually we, we quit playing basketball. We started playing kick the can. Anyone ever play kick the can? There was a game where it just involved a, a, a can, a two liter empty bottle. You kick it, everyone go run and hide, and one person's it, and they try to find everyone and say your name before you kick the can again. It was a lot of fun. And each time we played it, we let someone else pick the rules and maybe change a few things because it was their turn to kind of be in charge of the game because it was about a community, not about the rules of the game. And so, to be honest, if you've left before, if you're listening on a CD, you've been upset, or you're getting ready to leave because you're, you're upset, Here's the reality. I'm inviting all of us to play, to play kick the can together, right? You're welcome to be here and serve the community, to lead with love, to give to a greater cause, to be in a community and do life together. But we're going to have to play nice and be friendly. and We're going to have to be okay if so-and-so wants to play with us too. If your beliefs or your, your grip on them are so tight, that you're unable to welcome those that disagree with you or even worship alongside of them. If your being here requires that you impose those beliefs on others. If I don't get to tell others how I think or believe or tell them that I'm right and they're wrong, well, then you might get the feeling that you're unwelcome. If your belief is that evangelical church should be filled with conservatives and that all evangelicals are conservative, and the opposite is true on both ends, you see, we value diversity in the community. Our goal is to not make a bunch of robots and to make sure that we're wearing all the same uniforms. We value unity over uniformity. If everyone in the religious faith community believes everything the leader says... Be careful, because that's a cult, and we're not a cult. I'm not sure if I fully agree with half of the stuff I say, so I don't expect you to either, right? I challenge my own belief system every week. I hope you feel challenged too, and I reserve the right to be wrong or to change my mind on things. But please do not confuse diversity of thought and belief with the feeling of being unwelcome. I do want unity for us. And where there is injustice or oppression or sin, we must speak out against that. And I know that some people just want me to ignore it. They don't want to talk about it. It might just go away then. Some quotes from last week. Diedrich Bonhoeffer said, Silence in the face of evil is itself evil. Not to speak is to speak. Dr. King said, Our lives begin to end the day we become silent about things that matter. 
Yesterday, I spoke with one of the fathers of a girl on my basketball team. Last week, this girl's grandfather had died. All of a sudden, I asked, were you expecting it? They said, no. I said, well, did he have an accident? What happened? He said he died from cancer. And it kind of set me back for a second because cancer is not usually something that surprises you, right? In my experience, when someone has died from cancer, they, they knew they had cancer. They'd been to a doctor. They maybe had been to treatment, but they, they knew that it was happening. And so we kind of talked for a minute and kind of agreed that as stubborn as men are, there was a, there was a billboard that said uh, this year, I think it was like this year, a thousand men will die from stubbornness. And then someone wrote, no, they won't on the bottom of it. Stubborn men, we don't want to go to the doctor. We don't want to see what's going on. And he, he probably ignored it. He, he knew his father, which was the great-grandfather, had died from it, and, but he just wanted to ignore it. So chances are it was something he ignored and refused to get help, didn't want to talk about it. But if we don't talk about certain things that are, that are killing us, and we think, well, they won't kill us if we don't talk about it, except for the fact that it's killing us, because we have to be able to talk about things that are impacting those around us. We need to have these conversations because God is in the conversation. And then a second thing I want to uh, say. Uh, last Sunday was November 11th, known to some as Armistice Day. It began in November 11th, 1919. That was marking the anniversary of World War I. It was meant to be a tribute to veterans, living and dead, who honorably served during war or peacetime. In 1954, it was officially changed to Veterans Day. And last week, we were talking about Jesus and his call to nonviolence and the stories that shape us and the fact that through the Bible, the stories of violence had shaped the cultures. And even today, the stories of violence shapes us. And to be honest, I struggle with that story and the story that our culture has shaped us by. And, and when it comes to war and to military and to violence, I, I struggle to try to navigate how we deal with those realities. And my not mentioning Veterans Day was not an attempt to slight or ignore, to be ungrateful to those who have served. You see, it's a, it's a complex issue for me. It's definitely political. And saying something or not saying something is being too political for some and not political for others. And I, so I can't win there. But I did want to come back around to the topic and be sure to communicate thankfulness to the men and women who have served in an effort to preserve freedom for all of us. So I want you to watch this video. It helped change perspective for me and maybe for you as well. I used to think of soldiers as people who were just doing their duty. Good guys, yeah, but no names, no faces, no histories. They all blended together, all that camo and marching in line. Sir, yes, sir, you can't handle the truth. Combat in a jungle kind of stuff. Makes for good movie scenes. Dramatic moments of sacrifice. Then, my best friend's kid signed up. And I stood by watching the start of sacrifice.
early morning runs. Endless drills. The pursuit of collective perfection. He was joining the ranks of countless brave men and women who gave up their freedom to protect mine. They lost time and friends and limbs and innocence. Their sacrifice started with a pledge, a code, an oath. It started with a heart to serve, a commitment to give, a promise to put others first. To those men and women, the sons and daughters, the brothers, sisters, husbands and wives, who serve, give, sacrifice, protect, we thank you. Thank you for starting. There's a book I picked up this week. If you're into reading, it's called Reborn on the 4th of July. It's a story of a, a military veteran who, who came to know Jesus uh, after he had enlisted and went to war. Um, it's a great, great, no matter where you end on the spectrum of military war piece, uh, um, it'd be great for anyone to pick that up and read. But it's easy to stand here and forget the humanity that exists behind all of it. Every soldier is someone's daughter, someone's mother, someone's father, someone's husband, someone's child. And when soldiers don't come back from war, no one wins. But as people of the kingdom of God, we should all dream of a day where wars are no longer fought. In Isaiah 2, it says, In the days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house will be the highest of the mountains. It will be lifted above the hills, and people will stream to it. Many nations will go and say, Come, let's go up to the Lord's mountain, to the house of Jacob's God, so that he may teach us his ways, and we may walk in God's paths. Instruction will come from Zion, the Lord's word from Jerusalem. God will judge between the nations and settle disputes of mighty nations. And they will beat their swords into iron plows and their spears into pruning tools. Nation will not take up sword against nation and they will no longer learn how to make war. Come, house of Jacob, let's walk by the Lord's light. But until then, we, we must navigate through the tension of war and peace and nonviolence. And remember that real people do make sacrifice. And so I do want to thank all of you that have served or who have had family members who have served. Currently, there are 16 million living war vets. There are 5.2 million that have served during peacetime. 2 million women, 
Seven million fought in Vietnam. Five and a half million fought in the Gulf War. Of the 16 million that fought in World War II, 558,000 are still alive. The more humanity sets in when we see that 40,000 vets are homeless in the United States. Yesterday marked November 17, National Survivors of Suicide Day. Did you know that 20 veterans commit suicide every day? Every 65 minutes. That's over 6,000 a year. That should affect us all. That is a conversation we should have. That's a conversation we should no longer ignore. The VCL, which is the Veterans Crisis Line, has answered over 3 million calls since it started in 2007 and has initiated this dispatch of emergency services to callers in imminent crisis over 84,000 times. I have the number put on the back just in case for you, for someone you know. I want to invite the band back on stage. What I want you to know today, that this is a conversation and this is a journey for all of us. Why do we need to know it? Because we have friends and family that are at stake. There have been people that have been left out. What I need you to do is I need you to practice listening. Practice having conversations. Practice peace. The truth is is that thousands of millennials are leaving the church because the message the church has communicated looks nothing like Jesus most of the time. That our deeds don't match our creeds. What I want you to remember is that we make the road by walking. That God is in this conversation. That God is in the questions and the doubts and the fears and the beliefs. And this is faith is a journey. It's not a destination. To be alive is to seek wisdom in this great conversation. To seek it in the questions. I want you to listen to this song. I want you to make it your prayer. And then I'll come back up and close this. I'm going to invite everyone to, to stand. I'm going to close us in prayer. Something I haven't done before. I'm going to ask if you're comfortable to reach out and take the hand of those alongside of you, also to step further and reach across the aisle. I don't want everyone to have someone's hand. Join me in prayer. God, like you, you prayed for us that we would have unity. I pray that for our church. That we would be able to look past opinions and differences and be able to rally behind the call to love God and love our neighbor. God, we specifically pray for those that are hurting this morning. We've heard it said. And it says a lot this time of year, but our secrets keep us sick. For those of us that are are hurting inside, that are holding on to secrets, that are 
literally killing us. We pray for the courage to stand up and just share that story, to tell somebody. For us that know somebody's hurting, to have the courage and the love to stay, just to go to them and, and, and have that conversation, to embrace, to love, to listen, to hear their heart, and to be a lifeline. God, thank you for a community that is committed to each other, that sees a greater picture. wants to be better at, at worshiping you through, through loving those around us. Continue to let that be our driving force. Continue to unite us under that. Bunch of broken, messed up, weird people that want to love you more and love others as well. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Inviting you guys again tonight, Community Thanksgiving Dinner. Um, with other churches, invite to be a part of that. Come sit with someone you don't know, whether it's in the service or at dinner, be a part of that. If you want to help briefly at the service, go downstairs. We're going to set up some of the tables and clear some things out. We could use some help getting the basement ready for everyone um, as we prepare to host. Guys, thank you so much. I love you, uh, and I hope to see every one of you back next week.